So welcome to this second episode in our series of Livewire entitled XDocs. In this episode, we're looking at um, two types of Christianity. Uh, the type that seeks first the kingdom of God and the type that does not. Maybe it seeks second or third the kingdom of God. And we've been talking about this idea of um, the difference between two operating systems. So if I had a Xbox and I gave a disc from the Xbox to a friend who had a PlayStation uh, and he put it in the PlayStation, it wouldn't work. He might think that the disc is broken, but actually it's because his operating system doesn't understand this particular disc. And in the same way, uh, if we're operating um, on, on a different system, if you like, from, from the way God wants us to, it's harder sometimes to find God's direction in our life. It's harder to make healthy partnerships with other people who are following God. Many things are different and we make, uh, sorry, many things are difficult and we can make missteps along the way. So what we're trying to do in this series is look at this idea of seeking first the heart of God, but also asking ourselves a question, where's our heart in that? You know, over a period of time, things change. Um, I remember when I was in my early 20s uh, and God was calling me to ministry, uh, he challenged me with the question, what if I take you away from home and family? And uh, I went for a real difficult time struggling with that and then eventually kind of came to a place where I said to God, no, I'll do it. Um, that was most tested when I went to uh, join an organization to train to be a missionary. And um, the Foxy Lynn, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, told me that if I went to Scotland, uh, we'd no longer um, be able to kind of carry on in our relationship. And it was really tough for a while. What I didn't realize is that when I came back, we would kind of get back together. So I thought, well, that's it now. I've made that decision and I'm following Christ and that's great. But later on, probably about eight years later, I walked across England. And when I walked across England, I was very exhausted during the first few days. And because of that, it made me more spiritually weak. And then God again asked me that question, what if, Paul, the thing I called you to takes you away from home? And I realized that my heart had changed and I wasn't as prepared as I had been before. So I had to go through that, that kind of um, realigning my heart again to seeking first the kingdom of God. You know, the word of God says this in Ecclesiastes. He has also set eternity in the human heart. What does that mean? Well, some people would say there's a God-shaped hole in every one of us that only God can fill. I would suggest there's actually a God-shaped hole in every one of us that in our lives, even God can't fill. I know that sounds controversial. What I mean by that is God has put eternal purposes, eternal things in your heart that can only really be fulfilled in eternity. And that's why even Christians who are following God, if they're still chasing after worldly things, um, but asking God to bless them, will never really be fully satisfied, even in this life. So with those things in mind, um, and the thought that we can't, pursue God, but at the same time fight with worldly tactics. Uh, let's look at our first workshop. Please take a look at the excerpts from my book, The Line and the Dot, on your worksheet and ask the following questions. Have you ever tried to fight worldliness using worldly methods? 
And if so, what was the result? You'll need to read the excerpt uh, carefully because there's some nuances in there that will make more sense and give more depth to the question. After you've tackled that workshop, we will go straight into how we can check our hearts. So we've been looking at this question, what operating system are we operating on? How are we connecting with God? Uh, are we seeking first the kingdom or are we seeking second or third the kingdom after some other stuff that's more important to us? So I'm going to look at one of the ways that we can uh, check our hearts. And we're going to start by looking at the story of David and Goliath. So I'm going to read some excerpts uh, to you. Now, rather than following in the Bible, because I'm taking a huge passage and just bringing out certain verses, we're going to put some pictures on the screen to help you imagine the scene. So this photograph is of the Shephelah, which is in the Valley of Elah. This is the place where David fought Goliath. What was happening here was the Philistines were trying to take uh, the Shephelah. It was a key military position in order to split the kingdom in two and conquer it. So let me tell you the story based from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Goliath says, pick your best fighter and pit him against me. If he gets the upper hand and kills me, the Philistines will all become your slaves. But if I get the upper hand and kill him, you will all become my slaves and serve us. I challenge the troops of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let us fight it out together. When Saul and all his troops heard the Philistine challenge, they were afraid and lost hope. Enter David. Then Saul outfitted David as a soldier in armour. But David told Saul, I cannot even move with all this stuff on me. I'm not used to this. And he took it off. Then David took the shepherd's staff, selected five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the pocket of the shepherd's pack and with his sling in his hand approached Goliath. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearing in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. The Philistine ridiculed David. David answered, the battle belongs to God. He's handing you to us on a platter. That roused the Philistine and he started towards David. David took off from the front line, running towards the Philistine David reached into his pocket and took a stone, slung it and hit the Philistine head on in the forehead, embedding the stone deeply. The Philistine crashed face down in the dirt. When the Philistines saw that their great champion was dead, they scattered, running for their lives. If you look at the context of this passage, you realise there's something not right about this story. In fact, there's a few questions. First of all, why did Goliath have to be led out? David wasn't. Why did he need an armour bearer to lead him to the battle? Why did he say, uh, come to me, David? Why did he need to say that? He was already approaching David. David was already uh, on the battlefield. Why did he say sticks and not stick? The author Malcolm Gladwell said, 
everything I knew about that story turned out to be wrong. See, David and Goliath traditionally has been uh, a story we've used to talk about the underdog and the improbable and the small guy beating the big guy. It's become a, a huge metaphor well outside of Christianity. In actual reality, we've got it wrong. And as romantic as that story is, it's not really exactly what happened. Actually, this is more about laws and love. So let me explain. First of all, let's understand something about David and his sling. This was a powerful weapon. Scientists say that a sling in the days of David had a stopping power of a 0.45 caliber handgun. Slingers could hit birds in flight and obstacles at 200 yards away. So in those days, there were three types of armies, or three departments, you could say. There was the heavy infantry, there was the cavalry, and then there was the artillery. And of course, David was part of the artillery. Goliath wasn't. He was heavy infantry. That's why he's expecting and needs David to come towards him, because he needs to fight with him hand-to-hand, -hand, in hand-to-hand -hand battle. That's what Goliath is expecting because for those days, that was the rule of the day. That's what happened. You would send your heavy infantry, an individual onto the field and another big guy would come and they would beat the living daylights out of each other. That's what Goliath was doing. Goliath was playing by the rules. David wasn't. Goliath is not what he seems to be. So first of all, he's led by an attendant. He, and the implication, if you read the different versions, is he's walking very slowly. David races towards him. And it's clear that Goliath is completely taken by surprise, almost as though he, he can't see what David is really up to. So the medical world, and Malcolm Gladwell looked into this, um, looked at this story, and they decided they were pretty sure the Goliath had acromegaly. Now, acromegaly is a form, the most common form of giantism. So it's produced by a, a tumor, or there's a tumor that produces too much of the growth hormone. So people grow very quickly and almost a little bit clumsily as well. It has some side effects, which I'll mention in a minute. Um, I don't know if you remember Jaws from the Roger Moore, James Bond movies. Uh, he is probably the most famous person with acromegaly. And we think, and the medical world, and many historians think that that is what Goliath had. The side effects of this are clumsiness and slowness. He really was heavy infantry. He, he was heavy without any kind of armor, but with the kind of armor he would have been wearing, he would have gone at the pace of a very slow tank. But also, and very importantly, uh, acromegaly affects the, the eyesight. Uh, it compresses the nerves. So you can see double vision. You can see things very um, faded and very, very blurred. Of course, in those days, they didn't have the technology that now we have. They didn't have things like uh, eyeglasses. So what you get is a story that makes sense. You have this man who's heavy infantry and he's walking really slowly towards David. He's expecting to fight somebody like David. He says, come to me. He's expecting to have hand-to-hand -hand battle. 
In actual fact, David races towards him. He says, why are you coming to me with sticks? David didn't have stick. He had, he had one stick. He had a sling. He's, he's seen double vision. Something's not right here. So we get this story in our romantic idea of this giant, this strong, agile fighter against this weak little boy. Well, the boy wasn't weak. He was strong. He was handsome. He was skillful. And the giant, actually, his strength was his weakness. What they thought was strength was actually weakness. And David beats him. So the question is, what is the point of the story? As we look at our first workshop, I want you to bear in mind a couple of things. First of all, there's no biblical evidence for the idea of a giant, super strong athlete and some weak little boy. And secondly, the story is not referenced in that way anywhere else in the Bible. So we use it to really emphasize this great metaphor, but it's odd that nobody else in the Bible refers to it the way we do. Something different was happening. So as we look at this workshop, let's discuss what is the real lesson of the story. There are a couple of reasons why we shouldn't maybe buy into the romantic story of David and Goliath. Uh, first is because there's no biblical evidence. If you were to have the story, if you were to look at the context, you just wouldn't find any evidence for the, the big strong guy versus the little weak guy who's disadvantaged. And secondly, um, there's no reference elsewhere in the Bible to that story in that way. So, you know, when you think about the great stories that we like to tell, David and Goliath is up there. But when you look at um, the New Testament, nobody ever refers back to that story. It's, it's not seen in that way. There's a different purpose. There's a different, a different lesson we can learn. So in this first workshop, I'd like you to simply discuss what might that lesson be. And I'm going to come after and share with you what I believe it is. So what is the lesson? I think it's the difference between love versus laws. And I think this is a way we can begin to check our hearts. You see, Goliath was um, restricted by the laws and he was defeated by somebody who was operating on a totally different operating system. He came at Goliath in a completely different creative way. And that's what love does. You see, creativity is a manifestation of love. You see, love always finds a way. Um, God created the world because of love. He wanted an opportunity to pour out love. So he created that opportunity. Um, when you think about pays, you know, uh, the usual rules were that we work with young people in a church on a Friday night in England. But the love that God put in my heart and many other people's heart said, this is not enough. Love finds a way. So love becomes creative. And we went into the schools. We had a different operating system from many other churches in the area. So what's interesting about love and laws is that laws have to be created because of the things that people do because of love. Love finds a way. I remember uh, a few years ago, a team in Arlington, Texas, a Pays team that were trying to work in a school and one of the team members could not get their police check uh, quick enough so school wouldn't let them in for a couple more weeks. 
but they really wanted to go in the school and talk to the young people. So they thought, how can we do this? If we're restricted by the laws, then we think, well, there's nothing we can do. Never mind, it would have been nice. But they had this passion in them. So what they did, which I thought was ingenious, was the team went in and they took in a laptop and the other person, the person who couldn't go into the school, was Skyped into the class. The interesting thing about love and laws is that laws come after creativity. You think about that in the, uh, the world of modern science. You know, we're moving ahead so quickly that the laws have to be invented to catch up, to, to work out what's right and wrong, because all of this creativity, we can do more things than we have laws for. That's one of the signs of creativity, if laws have to be created to work out what to do with you. So this, this litmus test for our own heart, I think comes down to this. Do we just stop doing what God has us to do if the laws give us a reason to? Do we just settle for the status quo? I think if you're not seeking first, you will. I think if you're seeking first, if you've got that passion to be on the same page as Jesus, if Jesus, Jesus is who you compare yourself to rather than other people or other ministries or Christianity, then I think you'll find a way. You'll look at your life and you'll notice you're trying to find a creative way when there seems to be no way. For me, that's what David did. David didn't play by Goliath's rules. He did something completely different. Let me just read a quote to you. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. If you're seeking second, uh, you might think, okay, great, I can break the rules, but that's not really what this is about. If you're seeking first, you don't think, okay, great, I just break the rules. If you are seeking first, you think, okay, I, I now understand that after I've fulfilled the rules, I need to go beyond them. David fulfilled the rules. David didn't cheat. He came at David. He didn't use an army with him. He fulfilled the rules, but he went beyond it. He used a different operating system. And I think that's a wonderful thing. See, the, the difference between laws and love is what they produce. So laws help us know where we're failing, but they don't have the power to help us succeed. If you imagine um, a car that's broken, nowadays you take that car into a garage. And what they'll do nowadays, they never, when I was younger, but nowadays the first thing they'll do is they'll plug that car into their computer and they'll do a diagnosis. Now that computer can find out where the problem is with the car. What it can't do is fix the car. And that's the same as laws, even God's law. In the Bible, God's law is there to show us where we're failing, show us where we're not quite living up to what God says we can. But he doesn't have power to help us succeed. That power comes through God's spirit and love, a passion to go beyond, to fulfill the law, but then to go beyond the law. Just look at this picture about the, the car and, and that engine and think about that. You know, what does God's law showing me that maybe he's failing, maybe he's not quite right. One of the interesting things about um, seeking first is that God always supplies our needs, but maybe not immediately. 
You know, you may be a pays team or a pastor or you may be a businessman trying to reach into your business or trying to share your faith with your community. I can promise you this, if you seek first, God will provide your needs. But I can also almost guarantee that those needs are supplied as, a, as an after effect. They're not immediate. That's where the test of faith comes, of course. I'm going to show you a, a couple of video clips now that I, I just really uh, think are wonderful. These, uh, you may have seen them, they've been on YouTube for a while. Uh, these were made by a, a phenomenal uh, animator who wanted to really kind of bless his son and make his son feel great. So he filmed his son and then he added After Effects. Take a look at these two videos. I hope you enjoy those videos. I absolutely love them. In fact, I'm going to show you a couple more in a moment. But what I, what I get from those uh, videos as I look at them is, is a metaphor. You see, I believe that the Father will add after effects to everything we do. Maybe not everything we love to do, but everything we do for love. So when I think about that, I, I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, when, when you try and seek first, the fact is I talk about two types of people. The reality is many of us are, are on some kind of sliding scale and it changes. There are times when I sought first, there are times when maybe the kingdom came second. What I've noticed though is whenever I sought first, God added after effects. If I tried to serve God, some point, at some point, God did something on top of that to make it work. And I think here's another way that we can think through that, depending on whether we're seeking first at the moment or seeking second, third, or fourth, the kingdom of God. Let me give you two um, ways of looking at this. When we're seeking second or third or fourth, the kingdom of God, your attitude might be, God bless what I love to do. But when you're seeking first, you'll find your attitude becomes this. I do this because God loves it, knowing eventually that I will end up probably doing what I love to do, but in a way I did not imagine. So for me personally, I, I just know that my heart changes. I know that I want to seek first the kingdom of God, as I'm sure you do. But because of, of my sinful nature, at times, actually the kingdom of God takes a secondary, a secondary status in my life. Now, I know that I change because hearts do change over time. So I want a way of keeping checking where I'm up to. And I find this helps me. The question, am I being driven or even stopped by laws? Am I just accepting the status quo? Or is a love for God and what God loves in me so strong that I'm being creative, that I'm finding a way? Okay, with that last thought, let's um, look at our final workshop. Watch the following videos and ask the following. What after effects have I seen God add when I've sought him first? And secondly, am I waiting for evidence of after effects before I do the things God loves? And thirdly, what does this episode of Livewire tell me 
about the current state of my heart. Let's see you, buddy. Um. Buddy, wait. Okay. This is my water gun. It's not hooked up to a hose, though, buddy. You gotta hook it up to it. Uh oh. Mm. Touche. What do you have? Nice. You remember how to use it? <laughs> 